a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where free thinkers and wrong thinkers of every stripe can safely gather to ponder the events of the day, to ponder the information that's being presented to us as reality, and most importantly, to claim our minds as our own. Yeah, I know. It's uh, Are you trying to tell me that uh, people are lying to us, Brian? Are they, are they manipulating us? Absolutely. But here's the kicker. You don't have to agree with anything that I share with you. You don't have to agree with me. You could listen just to prove to yourself, yep, this guy's as full of it as a Christmas goose. And it's not going to hurt my feelings. I'm here to speak the truth as best I know, to encourage you to think clearly and independently about the events that are going on around us. But most importantly, at the end of the day, I want you to be sure of who you are and what you stand for, more so than simply what you're against or who you happen to be against. Well, it's a target-rich environment today. We'll get started in just a moment. I want to thank my sponsors, including Dixie Chiropractic. You can log on at DixieChiro.com to visit their website, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. So we're going to spend some time today talking about free speech, and we're going to talk about big tech, and yes, Elon Musk becoming the single largest stakeholder in, uh, in Twitter. But I want to start with a piece from Dan Sanchez and Liam McCollum from the Foundation for Economic Education. Big tech and free speech, how both the left and the right are wrong. Now, this one's going to, you're going to get some pushback on this. So just, I'm going to warn you, for some people, this may feel like, hey, 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 (laughs) you're questioning the narrative in a way that's making me uncomfortable. But if you want to figure out who is the real censor here, this is something that's worth considering. Dan Sanchez and Liam McCollum say the war of words over online speech has been fierce and apparently unresolvable. From the left, we have calls to crack down on misinformation and mounting pressure on Internet companies to take down dangerous COVID-19 content, especially. President Biden went so far as to accuse Facebook of killing people by allowing vaccine misinformation on its platform. In response to COVID-related episodes of Joe Rogan's podcast, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy argued that technology companies have a role in limiting the spread of COVID misinformation. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki also piled on, calling Spotify's new policy introducing content advisory warnings at the beginning of Joe Rogan's podcast a positive step, but there's much more that can be done. Now, meanwhile, from the right, we have denunciations of such big tech content moderation as violations of free speech. In fact, several Republicans have even been calling for counter-legislation. So, for example, in 2020, President Trump, President Trump signed an executive order watering down Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which grants social media companies immunity from liability for actions taken on their platforms by users. Republican lawmakers in both Texas and Florida passed bills that give the government control over social media's content moderation practices. 
Now, both of these bills have been challenged in the courts, but this hasn't stopped Republican lawmakers in numerous other states from introducing similar legislation. Republican Senator Josh Hawley has suggested using antitrust law to break up big tech companies over censorship, while others on the right have called for outright nationalization of Twitter and Facebook. So who's right here? Is it the left or the right? Well, the authors here say actually they're both wrong. And you can see how if we realize that most, if not all, issues of speech rights actually boil down to the issues of property rights. So in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, Atlas Shrugged, rather, when Hank Reardon refuses to host a journalist whose perspective he finds odious, he's implored to tolerate the opinions of others and respect their right of free speech. Reardon's terse reply makes an important point. In my house, and as economist and political philosopher Murray Rothbard wrote, freedom of speech is supposed to mean the right of everyone to say whatever he likes. But the neglected question is, where? In other words, what's the venue? And most importantly, who owns that venue? Now, to unravel seemingly knotty problems of speech rights, the proper course, according to Rothbard, is to find and identify the property rights involved. And this procedure will resolve any apparent conflicts of rights. For property rights are always precise and legally recognizable. Now, Rothbard used this procedure to debunk a popular pro-censorship talking point that free speech rights do not, in the words of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, protect a man falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic, because such speech would present a clear and present danger to public safety. As Rothbard demonstrated, public safety does not require any such loophole for censorship. So again, the question is, who owns the venue? And that question is key because true ownership means having the right to dispose of one's property however one chooses. The theater owner can admit or forbid whomever she wants on whatever terms and for whatever reason. For example, if she, if she provides her stage to speakers on the condition that they refrain from expressing certain opinions, that's her prerogative. That wouldn't be a violation of the presenter's speech rights, just an exercise of her own property rights. After all, if someone barged into your apartment and started delivering a speech from your balcony, wouldn't you reserve the right to kick out that person? So once the ownership question is answered, the next question is, what contracts, whether explicit or implicit, has the theater owner made with others regarding the use of the theater? For example, when someone purchases a theater ticket, the understanding is generally that the patron is exchanging money for a presentation, and that neither the owner nor the patron will disrupt the presentation. So if you were to falsely yell fire in a theater, that would violate those terms. If the disruptor is a patron, the theater owner has the right to reject that person. And if the perpetrator is the owner, the patrons have been defrauded and have the legally enforceable right to demand their money back. In free societies, these are the norms that actually keep the peace in theaters, not any censorship powers of the government. It is the maintenance, not violation, of rights that ensures public safety. So let's talk about the unalienable right to tweet. As we can see, Rothbard's find-the-property-rights method of solving speech rights, or speech rights puzzles, rather, is straightforward and powerful. So now let's apply it to today's contentious online speech policy debates. Online freedom of speech to paraphrase Murray Rothbard, is supposed to mean the right of everyone to tweet whatever he likes. But the neglected question is, where? 
Now, where can seem a tricky question because when it comes to the Internet, we tend to think of cyberspace and the cloud in such ethereal terms. But as a popular meme puts it, the cloud is just someone else's computer. Whenever someone posts a tweet, a YouTube video, or any other piece of online content, it's hosted on a server farm somewhere. Servers are the venues or theaters for online speech. So the question is, who owns or leases the servers? The obvious answer is the tech companies. Just like the theater owner, online platform owners have the right to provide or deny access to whomever they want on whatever terms and for whatever reason. If they want to ban users for posting certain things, that's their prerogative. Now, such a ban may be capricious, unfair, even condemnable, but it would not be a violation of the platform user's speech rights, but simply an exercise of the platform owner's property rights. Now, on the other hand, a government ban on such bans would be unjust. It would legally require companies to use their own servers to host content against their will. That would be just as much a violation of property rights as forcing a theater owner to provide her stage to certain speakers. In both cases, government would be forcing people to platform and thus participate in certain speech. Thus, many proposed anti-censorship policies coming from the right would have the Orwellian effect of imposing compelled speech in the name of free speech. See, that's the part where my cognitive dissonance was kicking and going, hey, but, but, but it seems like the right is the ones that uh, are being most deliberately targeted by these social media or big tech giants. Now, that's not to say that online censorship is welcome. A major source of big tech censorship is indeed the violation of rights. But that's not a matter of big tech violating the rights of users. It's a matter of government violating the rights of big tech. When a government doesn't like the content coming out of a media industry, it doesn't always have to enact formal laws to censor it. Sometimes all politicians and bureaucrats have to do is make their displeasure over the content abundantly clear and to threaten, whether implicitly or explicitly, to crack down on the industry. Generally, a threat is all it takes to intimidate private companies into censoring themselves to preempt or prepare for the imminent crackdown. Got to tap the brakes here because we're up against our own commercial break. But this is a pretty good rule of thumb. The property rights thing does apply. And thankfully, there are growing alternatives. Now, we'll talk about Elon Musk a little bit later on and why some people are losing their minds over him becoming a, uh, I think he's a board member now of Twitter as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Going to be getting back to this article by Dan Sanchez and Liam McCollum. This is Liam McCollum, that is, from uh, Foundation for Economic Education, about how big tech and free speech, both the left and the right, are wrong. We'll get back to that in just a moment. I want to give a shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. I know that uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Some of it might even seem a little bit gloomy. And I'm not saying that, uh, you know, buying food storage is the answer to everything. But I'm thinking that anything you do that betters your standing and your ability to stand on your own feet has got to be a good thing. 
whether whether it's the peace of mind to get you through shortages or emergencies or the ability to purify your own water, to cook in a time where maybe the electric grid was down for a period of time. Maybe this is something you want to think about. Maybe you're thinking about planting a garden or you want to sprout seeds, you know, to to grow your own, uh, you know, greens. They have such a full range of items to choose from. And yes, they will save you a bunch of money in the process. Now, I know everything is expensive. Everything's more expensive. But orders over $99 ship for free. All products you see listed on their website are in stock. That's lifesavingfood.com. All right, let's uh, get back here to the article here from Dan Sanchez and Liam McCollum. See, they, they talk about how if, if government threatens big tech, usually that's enough to intimidate private companies into censoring themselves in order to preempt or to prepare for a crackdown. And the example that they give is back in the 1920s, there was a moral panic over indecency in movies. <laughs> how do you think those folks would feel today? <laughs> Sorry, but we've come a long way. Anyway, there was intense political pressure on the film industry with legislators in 37 states introducing almost 100 film censorship bills in 1921. Now, in 1922, the Wikipedia article continues, as they were faced with the prospect of having to comply with hundreds and potentially thousands of inconsistent, easily changed decency laws in order to show their films, the studios chose self-regulation as the preferable option. Enlisting Presbyterian elder Will H. Hayes, postmaster general under former President Warren G. Harding, and former head of the Republican National Committee to rehabilitate Hollywood's image. Under Hayes's leadership, the film industry would eventually adopt the Motion Picture Production Code. It's also known as the Hayes Code, which imposed strict content regulations on movies. Then in the 1950s, another moral panic, this time over comic books and juvenile delinquency, culminated in Senate hearings that prompted the comic book industry to self-censor by creating its own version of the Hayes Code, the Comics Code Authority. Now the moral panic is over misinformation. But the government's censorship playbook is still largely the same. This year of especially egregious big tech censorship was preceded by a series of congressional hearings pressuring the industry to self-regulate or else. As Glenn Greenwald wrote in February of 2021, for the third time in less than five months, the U.S. Congress has summoned the CEOs of social media companies to appear before them with the explicit intent to pressure and coerce them to censor more content from their platforms. On March 25th, the House Energy and Commerce Committee interrogates Jack, uh, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, and Google's Sundar Pichai at a hearing which the committee announced will focus on misinformation and disinformation plaguing online platforms. Greenwald goes on to say the committee's chair, Representative Frank Pallone Jr. of New Jersey, and the two chairs of the subcommittees holding the hearings, Mike Doyle from Pennsylvania and Jan Schakowsky of Illinois, said in a joint statement that the impetus was falsehoods about the COVID-19 vaccine and debunked claims of election fraud. They argued that these online platforms have allowed misinformation to spread, intensifying national crises with real-life grim consequences for public health and safety. Adding this hearing will continue the committee's work of holding online platforms accountable for the growing rise of misinformation and disinformation, end quote. So with highly credible threats like these from Congress, 
plus the intimations emanating from President Biden's aptly named bully pulpit, it should be no surprise that big tech is self-censoring exactly the kind of content that government wants them to. So it may not involve laws or executive orders, but such censorship by saber-rattling is still censorship nevertheless. So to return to the theater analogy... Imagine if a mob boss got an anti-mafia speaker deplatformed by darkly warning the theater owner, that's a nice theater you have. I'd hate for something to happen to it. Now, even if the gangster didn't rough up the theater owner or brandish a gun, that would be a crime. Coercion by credible threat, even if only a clearly implied one, is a rights violation. But again, it's not the platform owner violating the rights of the speaker. It's the censorious thugs whether in the government or the mafia, violating the rights of the platform owner. So in the above scenario, what would be the best path to justice? Should the community unite to defend the theater owner against the mob boss? Or should they issue their own threat against the already beleaguered theater owner for persecuting the speaker? See, their point is many Republican proposals to fight big tech censorship are tantamount to doing the latter. Now, this is not to paint the big tech companies as wholly innocent. If they, have brave, if they had braver leadership, maybe they would push back instead of being so easily intimidated. In fact, uh, maybe Elon Musk will help uh, Twitter grow a spine. Plus, some within the companies are already ideologically predisposed to this kind of censorship anyway. And some big tech companies have even pushed for regulation, probably because it would burden their small competitors more than it would burden them. But these problems, too, would only be made worse, not better, by getting the government even more involved. Indeed, doing so will inevitably backfire on conservatives and libertarians who push for that. Any additional government power to regulate online platforms will likely be twisted to censor critics of the government more, not less. Yes, big tech has been censoring its users to manipulate public discourse and to promote an agenda. Yes, it's condemnable. But A, it is also within their property rights, and B, they are doing it under duress. They censor because they are censored. So to fight online censorship, you must strike its roots. And those roots are to be found not in the valley, but in the swamp. I hope that makes as much sense to you as it does to me. Because <laughs> I, I get very frustrated with it, too. And if you've ever, if you've been in Facebook jail or if you've had, you know, flags on your YouTube account, well, now you've shared something you shouldn't or you've, you've restated something that we don't approve of, it's irritating, especially for those of us who are trying our best to, to promote and to speak truth, you know, as, as a part of who we are. But I do appreciate Dan Sanchez and Liam McCollum taking the time to lay this out. And, and, and look, to me, it's, I, this is just how my simple mind works. Stop asking government to solve every problem. That's the biggest issue that I see, is every time we go running to government, hey, I have a problem and I need you to solve it for me. You ask people to exercise political power over a situation that could very likely be solved without political force or p- coercion. I mean, come on, we've seen this happen in so many different areas. Once politics gets involved, once the government gets involved, things become politicized, then it just becomes a power struggle. Maybe I could put it in these terms. 
you know, teachers sharing their sexual identity and their sexual uh, um, private life with their students, including kindergartners and, you know, younger kids, that wouldn't be an issue if you took government out of the equation when it came to education. Oh, I know that's another topic for another time. But the bottom line is once it became politicized, it became a political football. So let's not try to act too surprised when people start contesting over it to see who gets to carry it the furthest toward their particular goal line. All right, thus endeth this sermon. Stick around, we've got some more fun stuff to talk about, including Elon Musk and his newfound role at Twitter. Oh my, this is raising some people's blood pressure, and I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I want to make you aware of this on behalf of one of my sponsors, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. If you are listening to me in southern Utah, you need to know that the Dixie Quilt Guild is putting on a quilt show this coming Friday and Saturday, April 8th and 9th at the Dixie Center. And I know not everybody is into quilting, but for those who are, they are really into it. And here is a perfect opportunity to get your hands on a handy quilter long arm at no charge. In other words, you can go test drive one right there at the show and see all the things that it's capable of. Now, usually these hands-on events cost money, and they're for a couple of days. At the quilt show, you'll get a much more summarized hands-on demonstration. And if you decide, hey, I want one of these, you'll get the best of your prices. Now, even if you can't get to the show... You could still stop by Sewing and Quilting Center on Bluff Street and and check out some amazing two-day-only prices. But it really is the best time to get that machine you've been dreaming of. And by the way, speaking of sewing machines, if if you haven't added this to part of your self-reliance plans and your personal preps, probably something to think about. The ability to fabricate or to repair your own clothing is likely to become a lot more important as prices continue to rise and as we see continuing shortages. Not trying to preach doom and gloom here. I'm just saying this is just one of uh, one of the steps in a very well-rounded self-reliance plan. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Please let them know that you heard their message right here. So let's talk about uh, Elon Musk becoming the single largest stakeholder in Twitter. A lot of folks are wondering, is this going to mean a return to free speech? Here's Jeffrey Tucker's take from the Brownstone Institute asking, can Elon Musk defeat the censors? He says a remarkable and truth-telling post appeared over the weekend from co-founder and former CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. Despite how the platform had gone to heck under his leadership, presuming he ever really had control, he has done good for the world. For years, he has seemed to object about to uh, how his own company was operating. He would defy even his own censors by posting radically pro-freedom links, knowing his own employees could not really block his own speech. After long battles, he finally resigned as CEO, not in protest or even in expressed sadness, but merely to walk away. And most of us had an intuition as to why. He just couldn't seem to turn the ship around to make it the inclusive and broad platform it was supposed to be. It had become a canned, highly censored venue for official thought with legions of heretics purged daily, often at the the urging of the Biden administration. Jack wrote, The days of Usenet, 
IRC, the web, even email with PGP were amazing, centralizing discovery and identity into corporations really damaged by the Internet. And then he said, I realize I'm partially to blame and regret it. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says such a statement is highly unusual in this world. In fact, he says, I share his nostalgia. In fact, I wrote books about the glorious consumer-friendly innovations in social media and finance. And Jeffrey Tucker says, I've not looked back on those books simply because it would be too heartbreaking. The centralization of the platforms led to their demise. And this is because such platforms are too easily captured by government. And they have been. He says, it's the strangest thing to see enterprising companies enter and then stay on the long trajectory to their own extinction. Not even the CEO can stop it, even if he knows how, even if he wants to. Now, over the same weekend as Jack's tweet, Elon Musk revealed what he'd been hinting about in the previous week. He threw down $2.8 billion to become Twitter's largest single shareholder with a 9.2% stake in the company. And he was then quickly invited to join the board of directors. Now, this is screen-level capitalist drama and tremendously exciting. Jeffrey Tucker says, as I've written before, Musk has established himself as an enemy of the state, opposing lockdowns and mandates and generally refusing to go along with the Great Reset agenda. And he has the money and credibility to back it up. Now, will he somehow manage to save Twitter from itself? Tucker says, I doubt it, but so does he. Now the company has to listen to him. He wants access to their algorithms and ban lists. He wants to know how posts get promoted and why posts sink without a trace. He wants to know the how and why of the bans of scientists, philosophers, entrepreneurs, and journalists. The wrecking of Twitter over several years has made a mighty contribution to throttling free speech and debate in the U.S., This is because Twitter figured out a way to train major influencers to craft their posted thoughts to conform to official policies. The company even wrote in a protocol that forced users to take down their own posts as if to shame people into granting Twitter's control of messaging. It is felt to many people that they were being pressured to lie, sort of like what one would find in a dystopian novel. So what will Musk do? Well, Musk has not somehow taken over the company, but his influence is suddenly huge, especially since the stock jumped 26% on the news. He will seek transparency, then he will seek to unban many accounts, at least that's Tucker's guess. Then he will seek reforms that allow speech on the platform with basic rules that everyone once had, before the days when social media became nationalized by the CDC and the rest. Then he might seek real structural change moving to a more decentralized model rooted in user control via blockchain ledgers rather than centralized control. Now, this is, the, this is the dream, says Jeffrey Tucker, in any case. The attempt is almost certainly worth the effort. Though he says, I do worry that his big news has created expectations that are too high. He cannot stop the purges yet. He cannot unban accounts yet. He cannot upend the company. At best, his influence will introduce a pause. Will he now be blamed for all the tribulations its users users face? That would be unfair, and yet there are signs that this is already happening. People generally underappreciated the reach and influence of the main players in big tech. And it's well and good that alternatives exist like Getter, Gab, Parler, Telegram, and so on. All of these are great, 
and Brownstone Institute uses them all. Similarly, the egregiously censorious YouTube has viable alternatives in Rumble and Odyssey. But they're nowhere near competing in reach and network power of these legacy platforms such as Twitter and Facebook. We're talking about factors of 100 or even 10,000 times the reach or much more. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, generally, I've been with George Gilder in my prediction about how all of this would turn out in the long run. These large companies that now rule will gradually fade in importance as more powerful, agile, and decentralized solutions replace them. The newer technologies are more rooted in actual human experience and aspiration, whereas the old technologies have been captured in the way that Jack Dorsey describes. Still, between here and there, there could be many steps along the way. What Musk has done here is quite impressive, but also unique. There are not too many people in the world who have the motivation and the resources to accomplish something like this. If it works, it will be remarkable. If it fails, well, he can move on to an, to start an alternative. And by the way, maybe this is obvious, but it's not easy to build new platforms. Trump's own truth social continues to fail. Too many shortcuts, not enough programmers, too much fear, too many trolls, too high an expectation. These platforms specialize in looking effortless, but they are anything but. And while all this is brilliant and delightful to watch, the real problems are much deeper than one algorithm at one company. The capturing of big media and big tech by big government, and we should be clear here, I mean government as controlled not by politicians, but rather the administrative state, is much more far-reaching. The salient trend of our time is for governments to outsource their hegemonic aspirations to the private sector, simply as a way of avoiding all the legal limits on public power. Now, you can pretty well discern everything you need to know about what this machinery wants for our lives by reading the New York Times. The Times daily reminds its readers that the war on dissidents is still on, there will be no apologies for two years of disaster, no admissions of guilt or error, no investigations of the ruling class, much less people and forces behind the lockdowns, mandates, passports, and so on. In particular, they just ran a vicious hit piece on great, the great scientist Robert Malone, who has been a real champion of freedom and science. He made mighty contributions to mRNA technology and is well-positioned to offer wise critiques of how they've been deployed. But instead, the New York Times just flat-out framed him as a purveyor of misinformation. That's it. He's an enemy. No other argument needed. So it's going to get more vicious. Here we are with astonishing suffering right now all over the world and at home, too, with inflation soaring, government debt ballooning, lives shortening, kids in a state of crisis, communities shattered, and a vaccine that not only fell short of its promise, but might, in fact, be responsible for far more adverse effects than we know. And what does big media do? Demonizes the regime opponents, makes them suffer, intensifies the censorship, uses more purges. And big tech has been there as the echo chamber. Sometimes it really does feel like a high-tech civil war is brewing. Regime versus resistance. Maybe this has been going on a lot longer than most people realize. With an economic crisis brewing and public anger rising on all fronts, we are in for a rough few years as the battles continue to wage. Jeffrey Tucker says Musk's taking control or some control of Twitter is a bright spot. But it's just a beginning. And it simply cannot succeed without the mighty force of public opinion, not only in the U.S., but all over the world, that refuses and rejects the new normal for the simple and beautiful reality of freedom itself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. HSL Ammo is one of my sponsors. I want to sing the praises not only of their ammunition. It's good stuff. And I have burned up a fair amount of it uh, at uh, Rowdy's Range shooting with Spencer Worthington, who is the founder of HSL Ammo. I want to brag on Spencer a little bit, too, though. Spencer is, uh, to me, the, the example of an American success story. A guy who has worked his way up diligently and founded a company, provides value for his community, provides employment opportunities for people within his community, and provides a product that people actually want and can use. Very proud to have him as a sponsor. His ammunition is good quality. It's new and high-quality remanufactured ammunition. And I know prices are expensive all over, but uh, by gosh, he still makes it work and, and makes it uh, affordable. Be happy if you did some shopping with him. There's a link in my show notes. That's hslammo.com. You know, the battle for our minds definitely is intensifying. And Gary Jindler says the first digital war is underway. And, you know, I, I know we have enough war talk, right? Oh, there's war everywhere. It's always war this and war that. I think this is probably a very apt description, though. And I like his, his optimism. Gary Jindler says digital truth will triumph over digital propaganda eventually. He's got some good examples of how this is working. Gary Jindler says after World War II, most people were willing to forgive the Germans. That was because under the Nazi regime, many Germans lacked access to accurate information. Though some of them suspected something, their brainwashed minds forced them to dismiss it as false. And it's expected that the consequences of the present Russian-Ukrainian war will be quite different because the vast majority of Ukraine is covered by 4G or 4G LTE mobile networks. Similar to Ukraine, Russia's mobile networks and Internet coverage are almost 100%, at least in populated areas. Citizens of Russia have access to truthful information or whatever remains of it during the war. Unlike post-war Germany, Russians are not likely to be forgiven this time. It will no longer be acceptable to say, we didn't know or we just followed orders. Russian units have been identified before entering Ukrainian territory. Each commander has been singled out. Leaks have been reported of a database containing 120,000 Russian soldiers and officials fighting in Ukraine. The names, addresses, passports, and military identifications of these individuals have been published. Additionally, a massive data mining operation with open and some illegally obtained but commonly available in Russia's sources revealed every Russian invader's phone numbers, family members, travel patterns, photographs, friends, and parents. It has never happened before. Recall that uh, the Internet does not have a delete button. The world will access everything it knows about the aggressors in perpetuity. For the first time in history, the victim of the aggression makes sure that every Russian will soon Google what their loved one has done in Ukraine. Now, he says today's generation of Russians, like the rest of the world, have no access to the names of those Soviet liberators who raped millions of German girls in 1945. However, the names of those Russians who raped Ukrainian girls, and some of whom were under 10 years old, are filed and potentially accessible on the Internet for everyone to see. Atrocities committed by Soviet troops and liberated by Stalin European countries uh, in World War II are not widely recognized, but remembered by the locals 
Some countries are familiar with the Russian liberators to a degree, to a greater degree rather, before World War II, such as Poland, Finland, and the Baltic states. It's a matter of a state secret that the death toll of Russian soldiers is kept confidential. However, with bureaucratic punctuality, the Russian Ministry of Defense, or Ministry of Offense, in his opinion, publishes a list of military decorations. Details such as names, dates of birth, army units, etc., are included in the description. The point is, the published data indicates whether a medal was awarded posthumously. There's an established strict numbering system for military decorations. The sequence of awards numbers with the posthumous mark provides the best estimate of Russians killed in action in Ukraine, as indirectly confirmed by the Russians themselves. And the number is currently an order of magnitude higher than what Russian propaganda claims. Shortly after the attack, local carriers canceled the registration of Russia-issued cell phones on Ukrainian mobile networks. Having robbed the local Ukrainian population of cell phones, the attackers became ecstatic that they could now contact their loved ones for free. However, no one told them that Ukrainian intelligence has access to all phone calls via Ukrainian networks. As a result, it's the first war in which practically all communications among the liberators are intercepted and recorded. And moreover, all telephone calls between the invading units and their relatives in Russia were captured and documented along with all metadata, geolocation, timestamp, and two telephone numbers. Now, Ukrainian intelligence quickly traced calls made from the territory of Ukraine to Russian phone numbers. These stolen Ukrainian cell phone numbers are made into targets of the Ukrainian digital campaign designed to influence the current smartphone user, presumably a Russian soldier, to defect. Similarly, Corresponding Russian telephone numbers are intended to cultivate distrust, panic, and diverse anti-Putin narratives. Russian soldiers are receiving frightening text messages. Indeed, after the war, we will find you. Revenge by Ukrainians is imminent. Neither you nor your family members are safe, even if you never depart Russia. One message reads, maybe not today, but tomorrow or in a year, you will die. We are coming after you. Now, the Russians likely had world-class secure communication equipment prior to the invasion. This equipment, however, is rarely used because of a lack of training. Thus, virtually no one among the invaders uses scrambled or encrypted communication modes. Instead, Russian crews use known radio frequencies operated by inexperienced conscripts. Ukrainian intelligence received complete knowledge of Russian operations through an open wireless exchange. At the beginning of the conflict, Ukrainian radio amateurs published known Russian military frequencies, and a worldwide volunteer army of radio amateurs jumped in and drowned Russian radio traffic in interference. Now, the practice was later suppressed by Ukrainian intelligence because of the importance of SIGINT information. After that, the international radio amateur community banned Russian radio amateurs from most international contests for the first time in history. At this time, Russians are still operating openly on shortwave radio and Ukrainian cellular phones. However, some are still baffled about how Ukrainian long-distance artillery batteries became aware of their precise positions. Now, two factors initially shocked the world, the lack of professionalism of Russian attackers and the significant level of professionalism of Ukrainian defenders. Today, the world is surprised the Russians have not much tried to cover up their atrocities perpetrated on the temporarily occupied and recently liberated Ukrainian territories. It appears no one informed them that targeting civilians is a war crime. The fact stands that some Russians, soldiers, and officers may not have been familiar with the Geneva Convention. Furthermore, 
They did not have a great deal of knowledge about Ukraine. Nobody in the Russian military was mindful of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986, so they foolishly dug trenches in still deadly radioactive forest. Now, the atrocities perpetrated in Ukraine are essentially unerasable. The high-resolution photographs and recorded metadata will be accepted as evidence by military tribunals after the war. For example, hackers gained access to a security camera in a Belarusian uh, military post office and uploaded the video online. Therefore, anybody can witness for several hours what Russian marauders brought with them from Ukraine and sent to their families in Russia. From frying pans to toys to laptops to women's underwear to toilets. At this point, the war has reached a complete digital internationalization phase. Prime Minister Winston Churchill assembled a worldwide coalition to combat the Nazis over two tough years. President Zelensky used 21st century digital technology to accomplish the same within just two weeks. Accordingly, it became the first war in which every square inch of battleground territory was filmed either from space or drones. Furthermore, It is the first war in which most firefights and post-battle dispositions were captured on cell phones and uploaded on the Internet. In other words, the current conflict is genuine, the first digital war. Gary Jindler says military historians have noted for some time that in a duel between armor and a projectile, the projectile consistently prevails. The first large-scale conflict of the 21st century in Europe may produce another adage, in the end, digital truth always triumphs over digital propaganda, despite initial setbacks. I've got a link to the article. Now, I'm going to say, Gary Jindler seems very invested in the official narrative, which is, oh, Ukraine is winning and Russia is losing here. I'm going to share some information with you in the next hour of the show from James Howard Kunstler that calls this narrative into question. And this is not cheering on the Russians, but simply saying, question the narrative. Whether it's coming from a side that you agree with or whether it's coming from a side you vehemently disagree with, there's still a lot of propaganda out there. But I will say this, Gary Jindler is correct that this digital aspect really does change things. And not just in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but any other conflicts that may be on the horizon. Something to think about in terms of maybe uh, keeping a low profile. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Are you ready to revel in wrong think? Oh, it is so much fun. And it's actually kind of a necessary survival skill in our time if you want to keep your sanity. So many voices out there telling you black is white, up is down, war is peace, ignorance is strength. Slavery is freedom. Yeah, Orwell was so ahead of his time. By the way, our program is brought to you by great sponsors like Dixie Chiropractic. DixieChiro.com is their website. This is Dr. Ward Wagner. Very happy to have them on board as sponsors. And in particular, if you are someone who is dealing with pain, 
specifically car accident injuries, a bulging herniated disc, or maybe neuropathy, I would strongly recommend reach out to DixieCairo.com. Now, this is primarily for my listeners in southern Utah, but hey, if you're serious about getting the best of the best in terms of care and treatment, you know, you might be willing to travel a bit. In particular, I would ask you, go to their website, DixieCairo.com, look into their intro specials, for instance, for bulging herniated discs, two, two treatments plus massage, $99. How about the uh, $99 Calmer treatment plus massage for neuropathy? That's DixieCairo.com. Appreciate them coming on board as sponsors. Let's talk about... Yeah, I want to do it. I want to, I want to dive into how if you're going to tell a lie, you should just make it a big old whopper. I've, uh, I've learned to appreciate uh, offguardian.org. And there's a great article from just the other day from Kit Knightley about Biden's booming economy is just another front in the media's war on reality. Now, did you know the economy was booming? I mean, would that, would that surprise you if someone were to tell you, hey, you know, this is really, really doing well. Well, this may come as a shock to anyone out there who is A, alive, or B, has to buy things, but it's definitely true. How do we know? Because MSNBC and the New York Times actually said so. In fact, there's a video clip from Mehdi Hassan, who did a segment on his show, talking about the Biden approval rating falls despite a booming economy. And Hassan doesn't understand why people would be unhappy with the way Biden is handling the economy when wages are growing and they've added a record 6.4 million jobs in 2021. Now, okay, says Kit Knightley, that reported 4.5% wage growth is lagging way behind inflation, meaning in real terms, people are being paid less. Yes, all right, new jobs were really just some of the people who lost their jobs during the lockdown being rehired. And fine, the reason spending is increasing could be that everything costs more. But seriously, we're fine. It's it's booming. Now, some booming economy deniers, Russian bots or anti-vaxxers, will doubtless point to all the evidence that the U.S. economy is not booming. I mean, they'll probably point out that inflation is at a 40-year high and likely to keep on rising. They'll point out the current gas price is the highest ever in U.S. history or that the U.S. is expected to enter a recession by the end of the year. That housing prices are increasing so fast that experts are predicting a housing bubble. That homeless camps and tent cities with populations in the thousands are popping up in dozens of cities. They'll tell you that the crippling sanctions placed on Russia seem to have accidentally backfired and hurt the U.S. economy badly. And most of all, that moves are afoot which could see major oil trades being done in yuan, not dollars a change that could potentially cause the death of the petrodollar, the end of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, and send the U.S. economy into a death spiral somewhere between Black Monday and Weimar, Weimar Germany. Now, clearly, this is all just conspiracy theories and nonsense, although, interestingly, a kit does have links to every single one of those claims, so you might want might to click on those and check them out for yourself. The economy really is booming. Oh, and in more good news, the chocolate ration has increased from 20 grams a week to, to from 30 grams a week to 20. <laughs> Did you catch that a little? Increased from 30 to 20. Wow. Well, that's enough sarcasm for now, says Kit Knightley. It's time to circle back to reality because that's what's missing here. Kit says, I originally started writing this piece as a brief illustration of the language of propaganda, an entry in the new normal newspeak series. 
but in the writing it changed. It made me think this story is more insidious than just a lie or even reinventing the meaning of words. It's an illustration of how far removed from the world of of the real our reality can become. Now, in the 50s and 60s, a single full-time job could feed, clothe, and house a family of four. Now, every family needs at least two incomes just to get by. Millions of people work multiple jobs and struggle to make ends meet. The UK has food banks readily discussed in the news every day. And Kit says, for most of my life, the UK did not have food banks. I'd never heard of them before I was 30. A relative of mine once told a story about traveling to South America in the 1980s and seeing the first homeless person she had ever seen. Now millions of unfortunate people are forced to live on the streets all across the Western world. People cannot afford gas or heat or food or rent. The price of everything is increasing, even as wages lag behind inflation. Everywhere you shop, you buy less and spend more. If all of that can be translated into booming then the economy itself becomes a nonsense concept so abstract and removed from real-life experience that it's either entirely fictional or completely irrelevant. Now, Kit Knightley says, look, we just lived through a fake pandemic. We know we have rigged elections. The economy apparently is meaningless. How much of what we see and hear in the mass media has any grounding in reality at all? We know it's not 100%. And it could easily be as little as none. Maybe we're not headed toward an Orwellian dystopia. We're already living in one. A world where reality is not refuted. It is simply not acknowledged to exist. The only truth is the headlines, which report nothing but covert advertising for the status quo or pump out outrage porn designed to divide society along carefully constructed fault lines and distract from the simple truth. Everything is getting worse, and they're doing it on purpose. No matter how they employ contrived statistics to convince the mass of people that everything is fine, even as they're getting fired for not being vaccinated and have to choose between getting warm or getting fed, the truth is that almost everyone works more and has less, worries more, enjoys less, fears more, thinks less. Economically, educationally, spiritually, we're going backwards. And behind this decline is intent. It's not accidental. It's not a byproduct of the system. It's not the inevitable fallout of capitalism. It is directed, deliberate, and malign. They are trying to make you poor. They said so. Fly less, drive less, shower less, no meat, no sugar, no alcohol, rent, don't buy, own nothing, be happy. Kit Knightley says they want you to suffer. They want you to be cold and hungry and not to mind or even know. They want you sitting in your rented one-room flat, shivering under 50 layers of rented clothes, sipping your rented cup of GMO cabbage water, and nodding in approval because the rented television says the economy is doing well. They want you arguing vociferously with your neighbors about things that never happened to people who do not exist. They want you to live like a pauper and smile because you're doing it for a good cause they made up. They want you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears, because making people believe a lie, especially an obvious, irrational, impossible lie, is the purest form of power and the ultimate form of control. Orwell was right about that, as he was about so much else. I get it, that's pretty direct, right? 
Sorry, should have warned you. There's no sugar coating on this red pill that I'm just handing over to you. But I do think this is spot on. And here's the thing, though. This doesn't, this is not a call to, you know, to acknowledge it and then just hang your head in shame. Well, we're doomed. (sighs) I guess I'll die, I guess. You know, I don't have anything I can do. This is a call to action. And by action, I mean this is a call to claim your freedoms. To figure it out. To build the, the parallel structures and the parallel societies that give you the opportunity to opt out of this plan that uh, whoever the great resetters are have for us. It's not like this is being hidden in the shadows, right? This is not taking place in the dark with, you know, some smoke-filled room and people with vaguely Jewish-sounding surnames, you know, plotting for it. It's right out there in the open. And it's being aided by a very well-financed, very well-polished media apparatus that's designed not to keep us informed, but to keep us distracted, to keep us outraged, to keep us entertained, but most of all, to keep us from noticing what's happening with any degree of clarity. That's why this program exists. I'm simply here to assist those who have decided that my life is going to be a never-ending quest for clarity. No matter what's going on, I want to know, and I want to know where I stand. That's why I do what I do. And I thank you for being part of my audience. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you If you are looking for a VA loan or a traditional loan or a reverse mortgage, for that matter, if you have simply moved to the Intermountain West, particularly in Utah or Idaho, Heather and her team are there with the stability, the clout, and the experience to help you get the loan you need without delay. And it's a very competitive real estate market, so that really matters. If you'd like to contact her, here's a couple of ways you can do it. I have an email link in my show notes. Click on that, and you can contact her directly via email. You can call 435 703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, here's kind of an oddball question for you. Have you ever wondered whether you own your possessions or whether your possessions own you? If you've ever wondered this, I have the perfect way to put it to the test. Pack up everything you have and move somewhere. I just did this within the last year, and i got to tell you, it was, uh, it was a very enlightening experience and possibly one of the most demoralizing experiences I've ever had. I'm typically a pretty optimistic guy, but that was, this is one of those times where the, the move made me so miserable that I was like, you know, Lord, if you want to call me home right now, <laughs> I wouldn't protest. You know, massive heart attack, whatever it is, please. Just anything but having to keep on packing this stuff up and managing it. I never understood how much my stuff owned me. Now, the good news is I've been in the midst of a purge for pretty much the better part of the last year. And if you're considering a purge, I think you should consider this article by Daniel Lattier. Is stuff paralyzing today's children? 
Now, this could easily apply to you as well. He says, I'm thinking of getting rid of most of my kids' toys. I'm simply tired of the messes. I thought at first that we just needed to teach our kids more discipline, that in addition to our thorough weekly clean, we needed to be more rigid about overseeing morning and evening cleans. But ain't nobody got time for that. Besides, that's ridiculous. Parents need to teach their children the importance of routine, discipline, and hard work. But if it's gotten to the point where a parent needs to exercise constant oversight or constantly look for new and creative ways to store toys, then something else has gone wrong. And he says, what's gone wrong is that my kids and many other kids today simply have too much stuff. And it's paralyzing them. When kids have too many things, they forget how to play with them. About the only thing they can do with too many toys is make messes. The disorder causes their play to become disordered. So take Legos, for instance. He says, like many parents, we began buying them in sets when they were younger. At this point, he says, they have amassed thousands. But a strange thing has happened to his kids as they've gotten older and accumulated ever more Legos. Their creativity in building has actually diminished. Many of their inventions show less imagination and complexity than those they created in years past when they were younger and had less Legos. Plus, they don't seem to enjoy playing with them as much. Now, on the contrary, they now eagerly look forward to building with Legos at the house of my wife's friend. She doesn't have thousands of Legos like we do. He says she just has one shoebox of them. But as one of my sons has said, it's just enough Legos. We can actually play with them. Ouch says Daniel Laddier, too much stuff. He says, the paralyzing behavior I've mentioned with toys is indicative of that old sin known as sloth, a.k.a. acedia, a.k.a. depression. In Summa Theologica, Thomas Aquinas defined it as an oppressive sorrow which so weighs upon a man's mind that he wants to do nothing. And traditionally, sloth was said to follow upon the heels of another sin, gluttony, which Aquinas defines as an inordinate desire for something that leaves the order of reason. Now, as an example of how sloth follows upon gluttony, just think about how you feel after overeating. Not exactly energized and ready to tackle life's challenges. Many of us have become gluttons with possessions, and in some cases have helped our kids become gluttons. And it's paralyzing and depressing us. The notorious show Hoarders displays the extreme cases of an epidemic that's afflicting America. The average American home now has 300,000 things in it. And one in ten Americans has to rent off-site storage for their extra stuff. In addition, only 3.1% of the world's children live in America. But these children own 40% of the toys consumed globally. And after cleaning up and cleaning up after this stuff has become almost a full-time job for households. It tells you something when one of the top bestsellers last year was the was titled The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Daniel Latter says being creative, being successful, being happy is in part tied to a certain minimalism when it comes to possessions. As I've mentioned elsewhere, the citizens of ancient Greece during its most creative period lived an extremely simple lifestyle. Today, too, some of the most successful CEOs maintain minimalist patterns so as to free up time and energy for their creative pursuits. Now, there's a fear that dramatic reductions of children's toys will cause them to be bored. In Lara Ingalls Wilder's Little House in the Big Woods, her toys consisted of a rag doll and a few books. 
But he says, I don't remember her saying that she was bored. On the contrary, I've come to see that it's an overabundance of toys and possessions that is more likely to make one bored. So Daniel Lattier says, I'm tired of possessions possessing my children. I want them to be free to develop and flourish rather than be enslaved by messes. I want to give them a more ordered life rather than be frustrated with them for failing to bring order to chaos. And he says it's time for the purge. Kind of an interesting dynamic at work there. And I don't know if you can relate to this or not. Are you a collector of things, for instance? I actually heard this analogy. Andy Frizzella was talking about this on his show, and apparently he has quite a garage of cars that he has collected. He's a very successful businessman. The, the guy has done very well. But he, he noted something that I thought was, was very appropriate, at least to this topic. And it's like, you know, when, when you first buy, and we'll just use like tennis shoes, okay? So, so your first, your Nike Air Jordans, you go out there and you buy those Air Jordans, and when you first get them, they are just awesome, right? It's just like, wow, these shoes, I mean, I feel like I can run faster, I can jump higher, I can, you know, do whatever, but after about, uh, you know, just a few weeks or even a couple of weeks, they're not super awesome, but they're still awesome. Yeah, they're still great shoes. Give it a couple of months, though, and it's just the shoe. Think about your stuff. Now, see, I'm, point, I'm looking at myself here, too, and going, okay, what am I accumulating? What, what is it that has taken on less meaning as, as time goes on? I love the shooting sports. And, and I've, I've been blessed to, to be friends with people who also enjoy the shooting sports. And, uh, man, I have collected and traded and sold and bought and, you know, horse-traded guns for years. But one thing that I have definitely noticed is back in the day, you know, back when I was just starting. In fact, back when I bought my grandpa's Mauser, which was an old World War II Mauser that he had customized and sporterized, it was nothing fancy other than being a custom Mauser, but when that was the primary gun that I had to shoot, I was a much better shot. The most amazing shots I ever made in my life were when I had basically one rifle and had to learn how to use it and use it well. But the more I accumulated shooting toys and, you know, and you know the latest whiz-bang doodads and this and that, the more I've realized, yeah, my skills have kind of gone down and my appreciation, I think, has probably suffered as a result, too. Now, of course, for some of you, well, fine, so you're going to purge all of your guns? Actually, uh, yeah, I've, I have let some of them go just because I only have two arms. And, and if I find that I'm not appreciating things, you know, at the level that I once was, maybe that's not a bad idea. Whether it's cars, clothes, books... Whatever it may be. Gold coins? Okay, maybe not that one. (laughs) Bottom line, though, is if your stuff is starting to own you, maybe it's time to rethink why you are accumulating it in the first place. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Hey, if you find value in the content that I share, 
if the articles and commentators and the guests that I have on this program bring you to a little better understanding of the world around us or inspire you to stand a little taller and a little more courageous in, in pursuit of the truth, I would ask you to please let somebody else know. That's that's all I'm asking. Just, you know, let them know, hey, this is a resource that you may want to avail yourself of. And, of course, when it comes to the show notes themselves, this is something I am freely willing to share. All you need to do is go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Click the subscribe button down at the bottom. It's going to ask for your email. I will drop a copy into your email inbox each day that I do the program. Now, I feel like I should probably warn you, uh, for the next couple segments, I'm, I'm going to be sharing some pretty strong red pill stuff. This, uh, Let me look at the bottle here. Yeah, this, this is 1,000 milligram strength red pill. But I'm sharing it with you not because I want to depress you or otherwise just rub your nose in how, how crazy things are. But I want to I provide some clarity as to what we are facing and, and make sure you understand. You are not in the wrong for questioning the narratives. You are not a kook. Or if you are a kook, you're a kook who got it right. So <laughs> wear it like a badge of honor. I want to start with James Howard Kunzler, A Theory of the Case. This is one of the best breakdowns of our current mass formation psychosis, the, 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 the hypnotic thrall that is over so much of our population right now. I mean, we've been boldly lied to by the political class and by the media for so long, it actually seems normal to us. So when someone points out, well, here's what's actually happening, we can have some interesting reactions. Here's how James Howard Kunstler puts it. He goes, there was, there was Scott Pelley of CBS's 60-minute show on Sunday night, the primetime slot of the new week, all queued up to run interference for the U.S. State Department and other deep state actors in the propaganda war over Ukraine. He says, let's be brutally frank and get this out of the way. Can you really trust either the U.S. news media or the U.S. government to tell you the truth? And the answer is, of course, you can't. You have been boldly lied to by them with absolute consistency for years now. Common knowledge, which is common sense's twin sister, has it that the CIA owns the Washington Post. The FBI owns the New York Times. And the State Department owns CBS News. In other words, all are conduits for official narratives. And since the State Department is the most responsible for the Russian cleanup operation now underway in Ukraine... You can bet that CBS News is in on the info grift to protect the state, its patron. Now, what Russia had to clean up was the long building after effects of now Secretary or now Undersecretary of State Victoria Newland's 2014 engineered maiden coup against the elected government of President Viktor Yanukovych. The issue of that bygone day was a tug of war between the U.S. and Russia, with Ukraine as the flag in the middle of the rope. Russia wanted Ukraine in the orbit of its economic customs union, and the U.S. was affecting to pull Ukraine into the Eurozone and NATO, or at least use Ukraine as a forward base for NATO in order to antagonize Russia. Russia has been the all-purpose hobgoblin that every U.S. agency and many political personages turn to when they're caught doing something nefarious. For instance, when Hillary Clinton's email trove was purloined through her poorly defended illegal home server, Russia was to blame. That fiasco spawned, spawned the multi-year Russiagate operation that bamboozled half the nation and ended up tainting the FBI, the DOJ, the FISA court, and both the House and Senate intel committees. 
Then along came Hunter Biden's laptop, infamously labeled Russian disinformation by every retired senior intel spook still drawing a fat pension. The news about the laptop and its lurid contents was strenuously suppressed by every mainstream media company except the New York Post, and its coverage was banished from Facebook and Twitter, which so many Americans rely on for news, an obvious and true conspiracy between government, high-tech, and the news media. James Howard Kunstler says all of this coincided, you understand, with the horror show official response to COVID-19 coming on the scene at exactly the same time, winter of 2019-2020. By then, Half the country had already been groomed into a mass formation psychosis over the Russiagate narrative that declared President Donald Trump was a stooge for Vladimir Putin. Thus, Trump derangement. Now, there is the possibility that COVID-19 was hauled on stage deliberately to terrorize the American public, confound Mr. Trump, and prevent his re-election in November of 2020. Hence the panicky scramble ever since spring 2020 among Anthony Fauci, Peter Daszak of the shadowy EcoHealth Alliance, and other public health officials to ward off the suspicion that COVID-19 was created in the Wuhan lab with American sponsorship and released for the aforesaid purpose of querying the election. Mr. Daszak notoriously put together a paper for the preeminent British medical journal, The Lancet, using a roster of medical luminaries to denounce the lab leak theory. Well, The Lancet eventually had to withdraw the paper. The Lancet's reputation will be diminished for years to come, merely one manifestation of medicine's more general moral collapse and eventual total collapse. Meanwhile, in the winter of 2020 came impeachment number one of Mr. Trump, provoked by CIA White House mole Eric Ciaramella and his companions in sedition, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman of the NSC and Intel Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson. As you recall, the issue was about Mr. Trump's phone call with Ukraine's president, Mr. Zelensky, inquiring about rumored grifting operations among the Bidens in that foreign land. Managing Ukraine, you remember, was Vice President Joe Biden's assigned portfolio of duties. The impeachment sagged seamlessly into the COVID panic, distracting the public's attention from the issues behind the impeachment. Namely, what exactly was the Biden family up to in Ukraine? with crackhead Hunter pulling in millions and walking around money from the Burisma Oil and Gas Company. Well, that turned out to be just the tip of the Griftberg. Ten days before President Trump declared a national emergency over COVID-19 and the ensuing lockdowns, on March 3, 2020, the Super Tuesday primary was held. Joe Biden trailed badly with support in single digits. Somehow, he miraculously trounced the rest of the field. The narrative constructed afterward attributed the miracle to a single endorsement from Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. Dominion vote-counting machine hijinks, anyone? Voila! There's your Democratic Party nominee. The former Veep, Joe Biden, not altogether a sound of mind, compromised by an already revealed foreign influence peddling. A malleable figure fronting for a deep state cabal, special COVID-19 election procedures with mail-in ballots shooed him straight into the White House. Thanks for your help, Mark Zuckerberg. What you have here is an interesting chain of circumstance. Ukraine, 2014, the astounding flop of Hillary, Russiagate, the mystifying Democratic primary race, the Ukraine-based impeachment, the COVID-19 fiasco, including deadly mRNA vaccines, the election of Joe Biden, and now Ukraine again. The American deep state is in a heap of deep trouble. It's impossible anymore to hide its turpitudes. 
even the New York Times and the Washington Post have been forced to confess that Hunter Biden's laptop is for real, including the thousands of incriminating memoranda and emails on it, along with all the selfie porn and drugging. It's obvious the president of the U.S. is corrupt and compromised. Doesn't look too good. Additionally, the deep state must now try to hide the emerging attempted mass murder of the U.S. population via the side effects of the COVID-19 vaccines. But the information can't be hidden anymore and is in fact bursting out from unexpected places, for instance, from the life insurance quarterly actuarial reports, which show unprecedented all-causes deaths and injuries among people under 60 years old. We know how this happened. On top of the deadly vaccines introduced with falsified trials, the deep state suppressed early treatment medications, is still at it, in fact, and instead forced protocols with the deadly drug remdesivir. In sum, America's government has capped years of lying and conniving via high-tech in the news media by killing its citizens. Rochelle Walensky and company are still urging the public to vax up and boost. How is that not criminal? So Ukraine is back on stage. The deep state made sure it would be by refusing to rule out Ukraine joining NATO and arming and subsidizing a large army that spent eight years shelling and terrorizing the Russian-speaking population of Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Mr. Zelensky apparently was led to believe that NATO would come to his rescue, the poor chump, wherever he really is. CBS News would have you believe that Russia is perpetrating war crimes by bombing hospitals in Ukraine. What they don't tell you is that the hospitals were turned into fortresses by the Nazi-inflected Azov brigades. Now, he says they would like you to believe that the Russian operation is a flop. That is not so, though it surely was not a cakewalk. What's left of the Ukraine army, including its Azov brigades, is cut off from communication, out of diesel fuel, out of ammo, out of food, and soon to be shut down altogether. When that happens, Ukraine will not be used to used to make needless trouble in the world. The sanctions imposed on Russia have successfully de- destroyed the financial scaffold of the global economy so that an economic collapse of the nation-states and Western civilization is a sure thing. The lingering question... Will these hardships reinforce our mass formation psychosis or compel us to wake up and pay attention to the attempted suicide of our country? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Do you, need it? Do you still need a few minutes? You want to prop your feet up? I know the, the after effects of that last red pill from James Howard Kunstler. I mean, he calls it pretty straight. And, and yet, out of all the takes that I have seen recently, I think he is, is probably as direct and spot on as anybody. I, I just, I don't see, I, I, I'm looking and trying to see where's the error in his thinking. And I'm just not seeing it. If we got some hard facts to face, and I'm sorry, I wish this weren't so. And I don't want us to sit there and wallow in it, and oh, this is where we're going to be forever. But if you haven't figured out that everything that is being beamed at us from the legacy media, everything that politicians are telling us is highly questionable at best and likely direct falsehood at worst, well, it makes things a lot easier. And if nothing else, this is what I hope. I hope it can free you up 
from trying to, to follow that narrative and start focusing on things that are actually closer to home, things which can actually make a bigger difference, not just in your life, but in the lives of the people around you. Sometimes I forget because I get caught up in it too, and I want, you know, I want to share the information that's, see, look at this, look at this. I feel like I'm standing there with a handful of mashed potatoes like the guy in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Guy. This means something! <laughs> and, and maybe it is. Maybe I'm just, you know, maybe I'm having a Roy Neary moment. But I want you to be empowered by, first of all, understanding if you see what's going on and you go, ooh, that doesn't look right. You're not crazy. You're not fringe. You're not someone who deserves to be relegated to the margins of society because you won't get on board with everybody else. If that's where polite society is headed, maybe we really don't want to go with them. Maybe I don't want a seat on that bus. Because it doesn't appear to be headed toward any kind of a destination that I'd want to be a part of. I want to share a couple of thoughts here from Boyd Cathy. This is from LewRockwell.com today. It's titled, Ukraine and the Zombification of America. And listen to how he starts out here. He says, increasingly, I despair of this country. The more I read and see, the more I'm convinced, or more I'm confirmed, rather, in my view, that the American empire is reaching a final phase, and that our shelf life is expiring just as all other great empires, Roman, Ottoman, British, have expired. In fact, he says, I keep coming back to William Butler Yeats' lines written 103 years ago after the cataclysm that was World War I in his poem, The Second Coming. Quote, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Yet Boyd Cathy says it is even more tragic. It's no longer a situation of lacking conviction, but rather the best now mimicking the enemies of civilization. The best acting as if under hypnosis and according to rampant evil with enthusiasm. What a friend of his calls the zombification of those who were once charged with defending our culture and civilizational heritage. Now they ape our enemies and fall into line like lemmings. In fact, he says, this has been the response I've gotten from some friends over this Ukraine conflict. Their passion is often clothed in a hysteria that characterizes and shrouds what's occurring. On a more global level, he goes, I can cite example after example from banning Russian vodka and banning Russian cats to firing dozens of world-famous Russian classical artists to expunging famous Russian novelists from our university classrooms, to removing Russian-made caviar from U.S. sale, banning Russian chess players from international competition, to, in Germany, banning the Z symbol, because in Russia it's similar to V for victory. In fact, conviction in Germany will actually get you three years in the slammer. He says the list is inexhaustible. Now he says, I think that what's going on here is these announcers, the, 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 the news media, the, the talking heads, may be highly educated, but what they're doing is perpetrating a fraud with a frenzy and a brainless zeal that makes you think that maybe that zombification remark is actually on target. He says, I think it's possible to believe that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was ill-advised or wrong, that Putin should not have ordered his troops in. Fine. But this over-the-top frenzied Russophobia speaks, speaks something more ominous about those who engage in it and about those who are possessed by it. Could this excess, this mania, be used, just like the COVID epidemic, for ulterior purposes, 
somehow to advance the objectives of the global deep state. After all, George Soros from the get-go has been an intense cheerleader and an active player with his various non-governmental organizations in what's going on. And what about the poor, devastated Ukrainian people? They become the cannon fodder in this that Nancy Pelosi's and Lindsey Graham's do not. When it comes down to it, they don't really care about them. Like Soros, they have ulterior goals, including regime change in Russia, teaching the Ruskies their place in the global scheme of things. Using the Ukrainian people as a means to achieve that objective is for them, uh, never mind. And what Boyd Cathy's pointing out here is that many on our side do not see that, do not understand that, saddens him. He says, by all means, criticize Putin for invading, if you wish, but please understand what's actually going on. Yes, zombification is a good word here. And he says that my prayer is that soon, sane negotiators in Ukraine and Russia will find a solution. Yet it's evident that our State Department neoconservative war hawks do not want peace, but rather to bleed Russia dry and hopefully affect regime change, another color revolution, even if it means the death of every Ukrainian citizen in order to do it. Boyd Cathy says we live in perilous times when Yates's words take on a renewed and terrifying meaning. I'm going to include also in my show notes today an article by Brandon Weikert. For the great reset to succeed, the elite need World War III. He says a catastrophic, another catastrophic world war may be just the thing to usher in a one-world socialist utopia. Now that is a terrifying thought for most of us. And I've never lived through anything like, you know, the generation that lived through World War II. Or for that matter, World War I. And maybe that's, prob- maybe that's why we're in the situation that we're in. It's been long enough and people have forgotten. You know, we, The people who actually bore the heavy burdens of that time, you know, they are quickly exiting this life. And what's left are people like you and me who've actually had a pretty good life and a lot of comfort. But we've forgotten about all the effort and all the strain and sacrifice that, uh, that went into making it possible for us to enjoy the good life. I hope that doesn't sound like, well, we deserve it because we were lazy. I'm not trying to be vindictive here, but I am going to say, when you take something lightly, when you, uh, in the words of Thomas Paine, esteem it too lightly, you're likely to lose it. And there are some things that I don't guess we're going to appreciate until they're either gone or on the verge of being taken from us. I feel like I've been paying pretty close attention for pretty much the last 30 years. Other people have been paying attention for a lot longer than that, and thank you to them for leaving trail markers along the way for me to follow to better understand what is really at stake here. It's not a matter of simply waving the flag more furiously or chanting you know, louder and clapping harder and cheering you know, your favorite politician. Ultimately, what drives my existence is a desire to promote the principles and practices of liberty. Because that is what makes life not just worthwhile, but makes it a blessing in every way. And I'll be so bold as to say that I I believe that liberty is the greatest gift that God 
can give us. But it's also a gift that comes with some some conditions in the sense that if you are not equipped for liberty, you will not have it. In the words of Dr. Harold Pease, it's like a butterfly. And it's been a very rare occasion throughout human history, if you look at all of recorded human history, it's rare to find people who have lived and conducted themselves appropriately to where that butterfly that we call liberty would actually come and land on them and stay with them for a while. So rather than just simply stripping away all the people who are doing bad things and trying to, you know, fit us for straitjackets, I get it. That's frustrating, and I want to see them, you know, removed from their power as well. But if you and I aren't at the individual level prepared to live as free individuals, to make the kind of decisions that enable us to, to expand our, our choices rather than limit ourselves and paint ourselves into a corner of, of diminishing choices to where, oh boy, you know, now I, now I don't really have anywhere to turn. If we're not focusing on the individual effort to become better people, then we're wasting our time. Now, here's the good news. You are absolutely up to this task. With the help of your creator, you are more than up to the task. The question is, will you step up and start taking those first tentative steps? This is The Brian Hyde Show.